This is Comic Shenanigans episode 744, a conversation with Ron Friends. Artist commentary on A Next 1 to 6. Welcome to the Comic Shenanigans Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Chapman. This is episode 744. This is actually my fourth time sitting down with the acclaimed artist, Ron Friends. This is a very uh, special episode to me, though. Uh, Way back when, when he uh, was first on on my show, this would have been way back in 2014, uh, sorry, 15, uh, August 2015 on episode 296, if you want to go check it out. Um, On that episode... We, I had talked about how much I loved A Next, and he was like, you know, really, you know, receptive to it and for talking about it. It was a lot of fun. And I kind of threatened jokingly that we should do an episode someday all about A Next. Well, after my last conversation with him, which was back in December, um, which is episode 734, which is the third time Ron was on the show, um, it, it kind of came up about how important Anex was to him because of he was more involved in the plotting, um, because of uh, Tom DeFalco, the legendary Tom DeFalco, I should say, uh, being a little bit more spread thin, not thin per se, but he was overseeing a line of three books, so obviously he wasn't going to be do- maybe doing as much of the uh, thorough plotting, so Ron got to p- pull a little, a little bit more of the, of the load than usually in their collaborations. Uh, not that they're not already like such a great you know collaboration uh, as it was. Um, so after that, at that conversation, I emailed Ron and said, you know, we we should do an episode if you're if you're up to it of kind of doing a commentary um, on the you know 12 issue run of, of a next. Um, so we set up a date, and he let me know that you know he had reread the uh, the series. Actually, he had reread 11 issues of the series as the 12th issue for some reason eluded him. And um, yeah, we, we set it up. We had a great conversation, and it was almost two hours in. And we'd gotten through six issues. And I was like, uh, so you'll hear it on the on the show where I actually kind of pull pull it out and say, you know what, we got to let you go because this is going to go f- four hours uh, if we let it uh, to go through the remaining two issues, two, uh, two, uh, sorry, six issues or the back half of the, of the run. Um, so at some point, hopefully soon, uh, I will have Ron back on the show to talk about uh, the last six issues of Anex. But uh, for now, um, now, once I'm done prattling on, I want you to enjoy uh, this amazing, opportunity that I had to talk with Ron. Uh, if you haven't read A Next, you can pick it up. Um, you you pretty much got to go digital. Uh, it's available on Marvel Unlimited. You can buy it on Comixology, which I've done. Um, you can buy, if you can source it, you can find the, there was a, an original a digest done with the first, I think, six issues that Ron mentions. Uh, or you can buy the, the original singles if you can find them. It's well worth it. It's such a, a quality, fun book. Um, very old school, but in a good way. Like, I don't know, uh, old school sometimes is used as a pejorative, but it's a just a, a delightful, delightful book, and it's well worth reading. You can email me at comicshenanigans at gmail.com, rate and review the show on iTunes, subscribe to us on iTunes, and also listen to us on Stitcher. Without further ado, let's jump right into the conversation with Ron Friends as we talk about A Next. Enjoy. This is Adam again. Quick note, um, there was uh, one or two instances where the audio went out a little bit, um, and uh, I just decided to kind of leave it in because uh, I didn't want to ruin the flow too much, or there's, I think, one spot where it kind of drops out, and I'm like, run, run, uh, and then it picks up again, and uh, we're kind of, we jump right back in, and we don't really miss much. So uh, just a quick editor's note. Enjoy. Ron, welcome back to the Comic Shenanigans podcast. How are you today? 
I'm doing well, Adam, and thank you very much for having me back. It's always a pleasure. Absolutely. So I, I think in the, our first conversation, which is many years ago now, um, I had threatened that at some point I was going to have you on the show just to talk about A-Next. And then after our last conversation, um, it when it kind of came up again uh, that how much you enjoyed working on the series, I was like, you know what? Let's make this happen. Let's let's do an episode all about A-Next. So thank you so much for agreeing to uh, spend some time just talking about this this 12-issue series. I'm kind of looking forward to it, Adam. I mean, it was one of my favorites, and uh, I'm really glad that it impacted you as much as it did, and uh, I'm kind of eager to see uh, what blanks I might be able to fill in for you. I'm looking forward to it. Let's do it. That's great. So just so as a bit of a refresher, so um, you have had the chance to go back and read most of the series in in advance of this. Uh, So what, what kind of stuck out to you just kind of looking through it again? Is there anything that kind of jumped out at you that you didn't expect to see or that you were surprised by or just general good feelings about the book? Did it still hold up to your memory? Oh, it definitely held up to my memories. The, the one thing that occurred to me as I was reading it that uh, was something that, that didn't stick in the foreground of my memory was how far in advance we had certain things planned. Um, I don't remember the specifics of what kind of conversations that uh, Tom DeFalco and I had as we were plotting them, but we had a general idea of like some major events we could tease and we could so we could throw out a mention and then explore it later you know I mean there there were things mentioned like uh, the the final confrontation between Submariner and Dr. Doom and I was actually surprised how early in the series that was mentioned and Tom didn't get a chance to really flesh that out until one of the Fantastic Five miniseries many years later, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, so I I really thought it was a situation where we were we were kind of cranking on all cylinders, uh, certainly story-wise and content-wise. I really found myself enjoying it. And, uh, you know, so, I mean, in a general way, I was, uh, you know, pleasantly surprised at the early mentions of things that would pay off later in the series and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and how well we were kind of uh, plotting in advance or at least leaving things open to be explored in advance, you know. One thing that always strikes me, especially when I go back and reread it, is um, and something I realize how much I miss in current comics is how um, how Tom uses narrative boxes to kind of, he's kind of talking to the reader and he's kind of jumping, you know, to different places and it's uh, it's it's very kind of Stanley-esque in terms of that kind of conversational tone that the, the, the omniscient narrator is kind of chatting with the reader almost and then taking right. us to different places and I don't think you see that as much in modern comics and it struck me how much I kind of enjoyed that but one question specifically I had about that is that when you read those types of boxes um, because of, you know, working on the book and, and speaking so much with Tom, do you hear Tom Tom's voice in your head when you read any of this? Uh, probably. Um, in, you know, in those specific situations, yeah, probably. In some cases, though, I was the one that I might have been the one to suggest that narration or that line. And in those cases, I guess you could say I'm hearing my own voice. You know, <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, it, it's it is. It's a shame to me that it's not done because comics have really made this move towards. Uh, and it's happened before, and it'll happen again, and it happens in cycles, but they tend to want to be movies. Hmm. And there is, but there, but there is a type of storytelling in, far, in as much as using thought balloons or, or narrative captions and everything that, that 
comics do incredibly well. It, it, there are, those are tools that are there to be used and can be incredibly effective in storytelling that I think if you approach a comic book just wanting to try to be a movie, you're cheating the readership of these, these other tools that can be used in comics that can't be used in film, mm-hmm. in television. You know, oh, sure. so I've always been kind of a, a of a I don't know, comics purist in that regard. Is that you know I where we just seem to be an industry that is always afraid of being judged as the redheaded stepchild of TV and movies. So we're always trying to either find our own independence and push away from it, or to you know uh, embrace it and say, look, we can be movies too, and. Mm-hmm. Neither one are true, <laughs> you know? I mean, there's a reason why nobody's ever done a direct adaptation on film of The Watchmen. Mm. Because The Watchmen, as an ex- just as one example, used, you know, every element of comic storytelling to its benefit, you know? Uh, and and a, an omniscient narrator is one thing that, that, that film and television rarely ever use. I mean, they may use a first person narrator narrator but they rarely use a third person omniscient narrator and uh, yeah I, I think there's a lot to it I, I think there's those those are tools that can be used effectively and shouldn't be ignored just for the sake of trying to make comics something that it's not mm-hmm. you know? absolutely I agree so as, as a bit of a okay, let's jump back for a second so before a next even happens and we've talked about this many times and I know you've mentioned in other uh, other interviews etc but for those who don't know so the original kind of genesis for the Anex characters comes in What If 105 when you have a very quick shot of the future version of the Avengers during Spider-Girl's inaugural adventure. Um, and you've talked before about how, you know, it was never supposed to be, you know, a young Juggernaut character. It was supposed to just be Juggernaut and that kind of thing. So when you, at what point do you guys find out, yes, you know, they're going to be able to create an old, a whole kind of MC2 imprint with three books set in this continuity. Obviously, you quickly stake your claim on A-Next, but what was that process kind of like in kind of developing this new world? Well, some of it was uh, was like, you know, it was thrown together just in fun for What If 105. When we, when we, when we were told that we were actually going to get a chance to, to do the series... That's when we started thinking, okay, well, we got to get serious about this. we got to put together a team that has legs. We have to come up with, uh, you know, a reason for this book to exist beyond uh, a clever idea. And we have to start crafting characters that will feed each other and characters that will feed narrative. So that's what we started doing. Um, there was some pushback from editorial about me not doing Spider-Girl because Spider-Girl was the whole reason that the Spider-Girl success that that one shot at 105 was the whole reason for doing this line so there was some concern from the editor-in-chief at the time that I should just do Spider-Girl we shouldn't mess with what did work hmm. but uh, Tom and I had every confidence I had incredible confidence that asking Pat to do that title was the way to go because he had had so much critical success doing Untold Tales of Spider-Man. So we had no doubt that Pat would be a perfect fit for Spider-Girl. Uh, he would have preferred, at that point in his career, he said he would have preferred doing a next or J2 because he was kind of itching to do big, strong guys punching each other. <laughs> uh, but 
he wasn't going to turn down the work either, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and yes, I, I wanted to do a next when when we finally decided that yes, Kevin would be a part of it as a second generation Thunderstrike. Then that's where I wanted to be. And uh, I don't know exactly what whether any uh, what kind of thought went into J two. Um, you know, it ended up being Ron Lim. I don't know whether Tom thought about some of the other people that he had worked with as possibilities or not. You'd kind of have to ask Tom about that. But mm-hmm. Ron Lim ended up being a great choice for the tone that Tom had in mind for J2. And uh, that ended up being a real solid title, a very unique title to me, very solid. Um, so, yeah, that, I mean, it, it really just kind of like, okay, well, we're going to do this. And we and then it just became like sorting characters. I mean, we wanted to stay true to that one shot in a in Spider Girl, we didn't want to say, "Well, let's just forget that ever happened," but we we wanted to uh, to just use that as a as a launching pad from where the continuity went from there. So that's why in the first issue we used Speedball. Run. That was going to be one of my questions. Okay, (laughs) so (laughs) looking at the you know the original cast, so you know what went into kind of the the ideas for the Iron sorry not Iron Man for Mainframe because it's interesting that you know years later they would actually adapt and change Iron Man's uh, uh, paint scheme to actually look just like Mainframe. So it was kind of funny to eventually see Iron Man actually look like Mainframe. But uh, going into it, what was kind of behind the decisions to kind of change the colors and make it a little bit different? Wise, uh, I mentioned this in the uh, in one of our last letter columns in a next. Uh, when I was originally designing a next, I always, there, there's a, a guy I went to art school with. He's one of my oldest, dearest friends, who is terrific at design. He's actually he actually did a few jobs for Marvel in the what uh, like late '80s, early '90s or something. He did a couple of jobs. His name is Rich Ianizeski, and I just think he has a terrific outside the box design sense where he'll he'll try just a little bit of everything and and he of course being a separate entity has a separate pool to draw from of inspiration and designs he's seen and things like that so usually when i'm in the in in, you're called upon to design new characters i will actually ask Ian if he'd be willing and able to step in and pitch some stuff to me and quite often the final design ends up being some amalgamation of what Rich pitched to me and my own ideas and 
you know, tailoring them to the specifics of what we know about the story or the character at that point. Uh, Mainframe was one of those characters. And we went through a couple of different, I mean, the early designs still had red and yellow in them and everything. Uh, I'll be perfectly honest with you, what occurred to me that I liked about black and gold is that I'm from Pittsburgh, mm. and that, that's <laughs> the color of all of our sports teams. Um, and when I put it on paper, it looked really good. So, you know, we were fun with that. Um, I do remember being at a convention one time when Jim Shooter was doing a slide presentation about Iron Man's new armor, and everybody in the crowd was just crazy about the idea of Iron Man's armor being black and silver. Mm. And I never understood it. That's, that's basically what they ended up using for War Machine. And, uh, but I, I never understood it because, you know, it's a four-color medium at the time. It's a full-color medium now. Why would you do that? But um, like I said, with, with my own affinity for black and gold, I went ahead and, and gave it a shot, and I liked what it looked like. And, and I liked it. I mean, I'll tell you, I, I probably wouldn't have liked it as much if not for the red eyes because I think the red mm. eyes kind of pop and and uh, hold everything together there. So it always frustrated me when the eyes didn't get colored red because I always considered that a, a, a part of the design. But he was very much a cross between what was going on in the Iron Man book at the time, meaning he was a cross between Iron Man and War Machine. Okay. Because I liked the bulk of War Machine. I had gotten a chance to draw War Machine in an issue of Thunderstrike. Hmm. And I and I liked the, the, the weightier feel of War Machine, uh, and that's kind of more what I was trying to do with the forearms and the, through the shoulders and everything of, uh, of Mainframe. Okay. No, actually, a, a general question about, uh, I guess, the first four issues of the series. So, originally you had Brett Breeding doing your uh, your inks there, and then eventually it switches. I think there's one issue by Williamson, and then Milgram does the rest. Um, what was, was any particular reason for the change, or was Breeding just busy elsewhere at the time, or...? Uh, it, it became a scheduling issue. I, you know, I wasn't on top of a lot of that kind of stuff. But we were in a in a situation where we were had to produce these books relatively quickly. And, and quite frankly, I, I will cop to the fact that uh, sometimes I use up too much of the schedule. Um, the fact that I was co-plotting and penciling these things and it was very much a labor of love. Uh, there's probably no one to blame for Brett moving on. Uh, more than myself, uh, because I just was not able to produce the books fast enough for him to do the job that he wanted to do as an anchor. And uh, I have to cop to that. You know, Al Milgram is a deadline machine, and, uh, you know, our time together on Thor and uh, our time together on uh, Thunderstrike and A-Next, I mean, he saved my ass more times than I can kind of count. <laughs> So uh, I, I pretty much have to take the bullet for that one. I, I would have loved to have been able to, to stay on the book with Brett. I, I tried desperately to get the schedule to a point where we could uh, give him the time that he wanted and needed to, to produce the book, but uh, I, I failed. What, what, you know. do, what do you think either one kind of brings out differently in your art, having just reread the series? Like, what do you think that each one kind of accentuates in different ways? Because they're obviously both great inkers, but, and they obviously do great work over you, but which one do you think kind of does different things that you like in different ways? Um, Brett is more detail-oriented. Uh, Brett had a file on all of the design uh, 
shots of the characters and everything. So he's he becomes very involved in knowing what all the characters look like and backing me up on detail uh, and uh, the finer points of the characters and everything. Al is is a strong, solid anchor that gives you back exactly what you give him. Hmm. But I don't necessarily see him as being as involved on a story level as on an individual character level. Okay. So at times I would, uh, you know, ask or remind Al, you know, to now remember Thunderstrike, even though he's in an adult form, he's not that, he doesn't look that old, so he would occasionally put, like, emotion lines in and things like that that, that I didn't think were appropriate, and, and we would either have them taken out or I'd have to touch base with Al and, and we'd talk about it a little bit and everything, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, I rarely had those problems. Uh, with Brett. Occasionally when Brett was adding lighting, he might pick up something that might age the character or something. But for the most part, I, those aren't issues that I have with Brett, but I would occasionally have them have them with Al. Uh, but again, you know, I guess you could also make the argument that Al was working that much faster than, you know, Brett is a more uh, detail-oriented and uh, takes his time with the project a little bit more. And Al's not quite that guy, and, which is kind of what you need when you're producing monthly comics. So uh, both of them, their own way, were there to save my ass, and uh, I can't thank them enough. But, uh, yeah, I mean, Al's, I mean, if you want to get technical, Al's more of a brush guy. He doesn't, uh, I, don't, I didn't get the impression he was using a lot of pen at the time. Okay. Uh, Brett's more of a, of, a, of a pen and brush guy, and, uh, you know, is a big time. Palmer fan, so I think when he was working on the book, he was trying, he was seeing us trying to do Basema Palmer from the original run of the Avengers uh, that they did together, the first run that they did together, mm-hmm. and uh, I was all for the vain attempt to try to do that. <laughs> no, I'm no John Basema, um, but it was, uh, you know, I mean, they, they, I I felt bad about Brett leaving the title because he was he was very enthusiastic about the title. Mm. So, uh, again, that's kind of something that I, I have to cop to, and i got to carry that one. So A general thought that I had... But been... Al is somebody that... What's that? Oh, no, sorry. Go ahead, please. Well, I was just saying, Al somebody that I would work with again in an instant because, I mean, we, we put in a lot of miles together on uh, on the end of our Thor run and Thunderstrike and, and Next, and, uh, and he's always been a, a great backup. So That's good. So a general question that uh, someone that struck me at least when I was reading the first issue, and I just I was wondering as the series progressed, um, when you were kind of developing all the models that you kind of would end up using in the series, uh, I was interested in your decision to make Jarvis a little slender because uh, I felt like he'd always been kind of a, a little bit rounder. So I was just curious about your decision to make him a little bit of a, a skinnier old man. He, well, he gained weight for a while under Perez and everything, but I was using as a model the. Uh, the John DeSemma, Tom Palmer, uh, okay. Jarvis, who, uh, which went into the South era. That's kind of when I first started reading the Avengers. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it was the book was being passed off at different points between Sal and John, and they both had a, a more slender Jarvis, and uh, that's what I ended up going with. Plus, we wanted to age him, but everything. But I, I saw him as being somebody who took great pride in his, uh, in his appearance. You know, wearing a, wearing a tuxedo as he does as a, <laughs> as a uh, butler. But I mean, now that he was chief of staff. 
know, I always kind of pictured him, uh, quite frankly, when I was on Thunderstrike and we had Jarvis appear a few times. Uh, I actually pictured Jarvis as being Patrick Stewart. Okay, I can see that. You know, I think a lot of people would be surprised that Jarvis could be that, but that's kind of who I, I pictured as Jarvis. You know, looking at some of the pencils you did, I can definitely see that. Even in the hairline, you kind of starts looking Patrick Stewart-esque. Yeah, he, I mean, the, the one I really remember it striking me as, well, that, that's kind of what I'm thinking in my head, was we did an issue with Thunderstrike where uh, a character with uh, electrical devices posed as Thor and was robbing banks. And there was a scene there where Eric... Uh, goes to the uh, the Avengers Mansion to go go down to the lockers, and uh, Jarvis is walking into the locker, and they're having a conversation back and forth about Thor and all this kind of stuff, and uh, and and it was just during that scene, handling Jarvis in that scene, that went, you know, I'm I'm actually I'm actually picturing Patrick Stewart in this whole thing, <laughs> uh, because I would have loved had Thunderstrike continued, I would have loved to have explored. Uh, Eric's relationship with Jarvis a little bit more. We, we, I tried to touch on it. We tried to touch on it quite a bit in A Next. Hmm. Uh, how much, you know, I, I believe at one point Kevin said, you know, is, is thinking that, you know, his, his father, Eric, always told him that there was one guy hmm. that you could always trust at Avengers Mansion. And I would have, you know, I was kind of retroactively touching on something that I would have loved to have explored with uh, you know, with some of the other characters, I, I believe when we had Spider-Man come back to the mansion in an issue with Spider-Girl, he actually called Jarvis Edwin, which I thought was a nice touch. Yeah. You know, which was something that I, Tom and I had discussed. And you know, I just think some of the blue-collar guys would have had a better, a different relationship with Jarvis mm-hmm. than a Tony Stark or even a Captain America for that matter. You know, I, I think Captain America respects Jarvis. I think they all respect Jarvis greatly. Uh, there's a wonderful scene in the old Jerry Conway. I shouldn't say that. It's not old, it's classic. A classic Jerry Conway <laughs> Thor story it was done by John Buscema and uh, Vinnie Coletta, I believe, where Thor pops off at Jarvis, but then finds him later that night in the kitchen and apologizes. And it was really, really well done and very much the way I picture Thor, you know. So, uh, yeah, I, that's that's how I saw Jarvis. And, and I, I liked the idea of him being chief of staff and him being the keeper of the secrets and the keeper of the history and and all of that that we did with A-Next. So. Absolutely. Um, another question about that first issue. So, And you guys kind of gloss over it quickly. And I wondered if there was ever any thought when it first happened to maybe go back but when you have the mace being given to uh, to Kevin and he says that you know I thought it was destroyed years ago did you guys ever have any thoughts about explaining how the mace survived or was just kind of getting you into the story well we never showed it in pieces in, Thor- in Thunderstrike 24 hmm. um, and that was you know kind of deliberate I guess um you know, when you're trying to tell stories, there's no point in painting yourself into a corner. Um, you know, I mean, that was one of the things we did differently for the 616 Kevin Thunderstrike was that Tom came out and said that it was damaged in that final explosion. Yeah. And then Thor repaired it and turned it over to the Avengers. Um, but, yeah, for this, for our case, we, we didn't really need think it was necessary to address it because in the... 
the narrative of uh, Thunderstrike 24, the final issue of that issue, you see the explosion, but we don't see the shattered Thunderstrike mix. So mm-hmm. it survived. Now, when you guys were kind of creating the character of Kevin as Thunderstrike, did you ever think about having him actually have the mace, or was it always kind of like we need to differentiate him, and so we're going to give him the powers into his body? No, it was. Uh, we, we definitely considered him wielding the mace, but the, I I like the idea of doing something a little bit different, especially since we were. Now, I, I think I've mentioned before that, that that design for Kevin was up on my wall within like a year of the cancellation of Thunderstrike. Hmm. Um, it, the character haunted me, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I did sketches of that outfit. I, I was just doing it in my spare time. I played with different color schemes, but I came up with that final design and what Kevin looked like and with with no use for it at all. I mean, there was, there was no hope of doing anything at that moment. There was no interest in doing anything at that moment. So when Spider-Girl came along, it was a way for me to just kind of like shove it in there, you know. <laughs> um, and that's what I did. And yeah, the idea from the beginning for me was to do something a little bit different and to give him the powers of the Thunderstrike Mace instead of... Uh, so you, I guess you could say I brought that to the table and DeFalco had no problem with it. So the only issue was, you know, uh, reverse engineering how that happened. And uh, Loki was the answer to that question. And uh, we loved the idea of Loki being in the first issue as he was in the first issue of the Avengers. And, uh, you know, there, there were many, many reasons that the first issue was titled Second Coming. Mm-hmm. You know, so. um, in that first issue, when you do have Thor finally show up in Asgard, um, you, you kind of you put him back in the, in the armor. Was that a pretty easy decision to kind of put him back in the armor and kind of make him look more regal and older? Or was it, like, how many different yeah. designs did you go through? Um, I, what I wanted was something that looked a little more Odin-esque, and Walt had already designed that, you yeah. know. So we, we, we put the, uh, I put the, the fur, I added the fur because some of Odin's designs involved either a fur cape or something, you know. So I put the fur on there for that reason, but, uh, but yeah, there was never any real doubt to me that, that, you know, returning to Walt and the beard and everything would be the way to go once he was sitting on the throne. How did you like drawing uh, Speedball here? I didn't mind it. I liked the character. I actually was involved early on uh, and, and received some Xeroxes of some of Ditko's early pencils because I did a, for, for Marvel merchandising, I did a, uh, a poster of uh, some of the main characters and they were trying to, at that point they were they were planning on selling Speedball pretty heavy, mm-hmm. and Speedball was involved in this one poster I did that Joe Rubenstein inked, and I also did the first the cover to the, the first annual that uh, introduced Speedball oh, yeah, to funny. the Marvel Universe. Uh, so I was strangely there at the beginning of the development of Speedball, and I, as I said, I, I saw some uh, some of the early. Uh, drawings of Speedball by Steve Ditko and everything in, in Xerox form or whatever that were sent to me. And uh, so I always had an affinity for the character. I always liked the character and I liked the visual of his powers and stuff. So uh, I, I kind of felt obligated to do something a little different to the costume uh, just to show the time passage and everything. Mm-hmm. But, you know, in, in, even in the one, there's like one shot, one panel shot in the... Uh, 
because uh, Tom, of course, knew the character inside and out because he helped develop the character, and I think he even wrote some of the stories. I'm not sure, but um, the, the the quick panel where he's a grown man, but his mom is still picking out suits for him and all that <laughs> kind of stuff was something that I, that Tom threw in. You know, to, that was Tom's suggestion, and like I said, he knew the character of Robbie Baldwin probably as well as anybody. So uh, it was, you know, that that, that was just a, the the. Everybody loves doing the jump ahead stories. <laughs> the one thing that I really liked about the whole MC2, and not just A Next, but A Next was a wonderful vehicle to show it, was that we made a very conscious decision very early on that if we were going to do this, then we're going to do it where this is the next generation of Marvel characters. But the first generation actually had a positive effect on the world. Mm -hmm. That the second generation of these characters would be inspired by the first generation of these characters. We actually were doing a future where superheroes made the world a better place. Mm -hmm. Because every other future I was, and I'm sure I'm not thinking of one, and somebody will step up and say, well, what about this one? And I'll go, no, you're absolutely right. That was a good one, too. <laughs> but a lot of the futures that were being done at that point, like Earth X and, and uh, you know, anything else that had ever been done in, like, what if, it was always this post-apocalyptic world where something went terribly wrong and, you know, the world ended up worse for having superheroes, which just didn't seem to make a lot of sense to us. And so we, we were very interested in, a, in in addressing a world where superheroes were a positive force and that people would be inspired by them, that if they gained powers, they would be inspired by this entire generation that came before them of people who, you know, risked their lives and made sacrifices but made the world a better place to live in. And that was very much our, our take for everything we did. I mean, we, we suggested some dark times in the 16 years between, you know, the regular Marvel Universe and the MC2 Universe, we, you know, we mentioned uh, things about Atlantis and Latveria and things that didn't go well, but by the same token, we, uh, you know, we moved ahead with uh, with other things and, and, and superheroes as a whole were remembered in a positive light and that's something that it, I thought... Uh, we were diff different by virtue of actually rooting for the superheroes. <laughs> the, uh, the, the, when you use J2 in the series, so again, J2 had his own series as well by Ron Lim. So, I mean, again, from the initial appearance in What If 105, it's thought that, you know, Kid Juggernaut, and you're like, well, who's Kid Juggernaut? So at what point do you actually properly design this Kid Juggernaut? And, or, like, do, do you and Ron work together on that at all? Or is it was it just coming from the actually? Design I designed and... all the characters. Okay. Uh, yeah, Ron wasn't involved early enough to actually design J two. I designed J two, okay. um, and came up with the. Uh, I think Tom and I came up with the idea together. It might have been Defalco's idea. I think that he wears Dad's shirt mm -hmm. around his waist, uh, which was a thing that kids were doing back then. You know, it was the Seattle thing and all that kind of jazz grunge. <laughs> um, so that's why that was added. But I, I, I do believe it was Tom's idea up front that he was wearing a, uh, a token of his of his father that he never knew, mm -hmm. which I thought was a, a lovely touch. You know, the the, the issue then was that once <laughs> once in the J two book, Juggernaut 
did come back and they did rebond and all that kind of stuff. Uh, I think they even did a scene where he gives him his shirt back. And uh, <laughs> so in later appearances, I came up with the, the, uh, the jean shorts just as something to to keep a regular clothing aspect to his bodysuit and his armor and stuff. Mm -hmm. Actually, to go back to Thunderstrike for a second, did you ever consider giving the adult version of of Kevin as Thunderstrike a beard or any facial hair, considering it had been kind of an important part of uh, Thunderstrike's look? I I did, but I thought it aged him too much. I I still wanted them all to look youthful because, you know, Tom was very uh, adamant about creating characters that young people could identify with. Hmm. You know, I I know it sounds crazy, but (laughs) wouldn't it be great if young people read comic books too? Mm -hmm. Uh, So, you know, there was an aspect with a next of of keeping the, the main characters youthful and, uh, you know, at least in their early 20s, whatever. You know, a lot of people were doing the math, which we never intended for anybody to worry about. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, we never named a year. We never named exactly how long it had been. You know, uh, if May Day was like 15, then we're talking like 15 years from you know, the baseline. I mean, there are a lot of wonderful people out there who are terrific fans of the MC2 universe who are very interested in when the MC2 universe branched off the 616 universe and blah, 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 blah. And that's not something Tom and I ever gave any thought to. The only time a year ever showed up in a Spider-Girl comic, it was because the editorial team was going to help. Hmm. And they would put a date like on a newspaper headline or something like that. But that was, that never came from DeFalco or from Pat Olive or from myself or from Ron Lim. We were never worried about it. I mean, our pitch for Spider-Girl was, remember that couple with the upside-down kiss in that movie that made uh, $4 billion? <laughs> Those crazy kids got married, and they have a daughter, and now she's a teenager. Yeah. We never worried about the math. That's good. What um, was interesting to me is shortly after we did, like, in Anex number two, Mainframe and Thunderstrike are talking, and they said that there hasn't been an alien incursion on Earth for, for several years, uh, not since the scroll incident that convinced the government to put up the uh, defense satellite network mm-hmm. and then shortly after that issue of AMX came out in the regular 616 they, they did uh, Secret Invasion oh yeah that's true and it's not like it's not like they took that no. cue from us or anything but I went well isn't that interesting because Secret Invasion could, could sure convince a government to put up a It's interesting so, how uh, much. Yeah, it, it's interesting. Some of the some of the reflections of things, and you know, great minds think alike. I guess. What can I tell you? I mean, there, there's um, there's a lot of like old what if comics that have eventually all come true. Like there's like what if Jane Foster was Thor? Well, guess what? Now she is. <laughs> like there you go. All that kind of exactly. stuff. It's, it's funny to see eventually all those things kind of get mined. Um, in terms of designing characters, one last kind of character we're not really talking about yet, but is Stinger. 
um, who's, you know, the adult version of Cassie Lang. Um, was that pretty early in the process in terms of we got to use Cassie? Yeah, because Tom had uh, some familiarity with her from his FF run. That's right, of course. Uh, yeah. uh, she and Scott were living at uh, in the FF headquarters um, for Freedom's Plaza during his run, and she had kind of had some interaction with Christoph uh, uh, Bernard, and and so all of that was kind of part of our the world that we knew very well that we were planning with and everything. Uh, so yeah, th- those were as we wanted to use as many second generation pre-existing second generation characters as possible. So that's why Cassie got drafted. Um, as far as the design on, I don't remember. I this may not be correct, but I don't remember uh, Rich Janizewski having anything. The the actually no, I don't think so. I I, I know I brought him on board for uh, for Red Queen, but I don't. Maybe he, he actually one of a couple of his designs for Red Queen might have been for Stinger. I don't know, but I, I think that Stinger was mostly something that I had been playing with that uh, that I came up with. But uh, overall, I was very happy with her design and and liked Cassie as a character very very much. So you know, I uh, that's why she ended up being one of the core members. You know, for sure. A question I had about uh, one thing I noticed at least about issues one and three is um, in those issues you have kind of the um, each each member of the team kind of uh, ringing the first page. Um, I, I'm very bad at describing what, what's what's happening, but I'm surprised. Like, was this a thought to maybe continue this past the first issue where you have kind of the, the cast on both sides of that opening page to kind of get, quickly acquaint people with who the team members are, or is it specifically just kind of a we just, we, we just we just stole that from uh, from Avengers number one. <laughs> okay. Yeah, that's just, that's just from Avengers number one. I mean, when we got to the issue three and we did it with the Avengers on one side, Defenders on the other side, mm-hmm. that was more on the order of what they used to do for when the Justice League would meet the Justice Society, you know, oh, yeah. and things like that, and the old DC comics. But uh, but as far as doing it in issue one, it's because they did it in issue one of the Avengers. They did the little little shots of the characters who were going to be involved and all that kind of stuff so mm-hmm. that was a complete homage to uh, to the first issue of the Avengers uh, the one thing you were asking about Stinger that I will say is that there was a, a slip uh, in communication between Tom and I because my in- intent was always t- that um, Cassie had implanted the wings the same way that that uh, that uh, 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 what the hell was the wasp's name? Janet. <laughs> Janet. Janet Van Dyne. Yeah, that she had had implanted the wings uh, in the same way that Janet had. But if you look in the first issue, when we first meet Cassie, there is a uh, she's saying to her dad Scott, "Everything's working great, Dad. The new propulsion unit is far faster and more maneuverable than the old model." Oh. So Tom was scripting. Tom was scripting it as if it were mechanical. Interesting. And in the, I don't know if it was as quickly as the second issue, but there was a, in a later issue, Scott expresses his disapproval that she implanted wings and stuff. So we, you know, corrected it in dialogue as well, and we never really worried about it too much. Nobody ever called us on it. 
but <laughs> that that phrasing in the first issue made it sound more like it was mechanical or wings were mechanical and, and they they were not so. from a from an artistic perspective so sometimes yeah, oh, sometimes sorry. you have to you, you have to catch up to your own ideas you know? <laughs> um, from an artistic standpoint how much of a pain in the ass was it to continuously have to draw uh, J2's boots because uh, there's a lot of detail that you put on them uh, it was my own fault because I that's the way I designed them. So <laughs> that was that was that was I mean there were some there was some shorthand we employed for smaller shots and all that kind of stuff. But yeah, I mean I wanted the boots to look like something you could buy off the rack. So uh yeah, sometimes you, you just kind of uh, bite the bullet and draw it the way it really looks. Mm-hmm. So. I have to uh, admit, I, I loved your portrayal of J2 just generally because you, you definitely imbued the character with a lot of fun. Like, the amount of times, like, he's just smiling and having a great time. Like, it really, it, it's a lot of acting that you kind of put into the pencils that really kind of sells the joy of being a superhero. Now, obviously, he goes through periods where he's, you know, fraught with self, uh, you know, self-doubt and indecision. But when he's really reveling in things and thinking everything is so cool, you really uh, drive that home with your art. And I've always appreciated that. Thank you. I uh, one of the things that was going on at the time was I was trying very, very much to inject more animation into the art, if that makes any sense. Um, I was very uh, impressed and influenced by Bruce Tim uh, and the work he was doing on the DC animated projects, and uh, I was trying to get more. Uh, and this was very true when I ended up back on Spider-Girl. I continued with this almost to the point of distraction where I was trying to get more expression and more uh, animation expressions into the faces of the characters and everything to show their not just their emotions but also their personalities and, and things like that. So, yes, uh, the way J2 was designed with the big jaw and all that kind of stuff, it made it very easy to kind of... Uh, cartoon his emotions and bring them out in in more uh, exaggerated ways and stuff. And I, I enjoyed that aspect of the character quite a bit. So, For sure, like there's a you. there's a shot in the, in the second issue when uh, when they first realize that J two is really just a kid and they're sitting on the Quinjet and there's a look that uh, that Zane gives uh, Thunderstrike, which is so perfectly smug, and I'm like, that's so well rendered. <laughs> Because he just kind of looks Would that at him. Be your welcome scene? Exactly, yeah. He's just like, you're welcome. And it's just yeah. the, way, the way he looks up at him, it's completely smug. And you just did, the details are so fine. And you get exactly where that character's coming from and his feelings in that moment. And it's just fantastic uh, portrayal of emotion. Well, thank you. I enjoyed, like I said, those characters were a lot of fun to do. And you, you have to try to pick your character so you'll have those kinds of opportunities back and forth that, uh, you know, will play out and everything. Because, you know, a lot of people, again, uh, Tom doesn't spoon-feed you all the information that you... I'm often surprised that readers misunderstand sometimes because Tom will will have people talking... he doesn't get a lot of credit for this because a lot of if if somebody asked you to list writers who wrote their characters in a naturalistic way, I don't think Tom would make a lot of people's list unfairly because I think he does, and he will have people say things from their point of view 
mm-hmm. that sometimes we get letters and go, well, that's not what you said about that character before. And it's like, no, because we're not saying that's the point of view of the character who said it. <laughs> he might not be right. You know, you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. And, uh, it was, there was something like that in issue one of the uh, uh, FA Next that, that people took incorrectly because it's, it says in the dialogue between Kevin and Jarvis as they're going down to the locker to get uh, the Thunderstrike maze that he was, uh, that, that there was, uh, he was, oh, here, I have them in front of me because I was trying to be prepared. But this was always something I wanted to address. Uh, he's, Kevin says, I've been living in California and only recently returned to New York to attend art school. My father's lawyer, Samantha Joyce, instructed me to call you. And Jarvis finishes that line saying, on your 18th birthday. Yes, Master Thor briefed me on this occasion. And a lot of people took that to mean that Kevin was just turning 18. Oh. That was not our intent. That was not our intent. Our intent was that Kevin was a couple of years older than that. And he was living in California. So when he came back to New York for art school, this was something he was going to take care of. But we always figured that Kevin was in his early... If he's in art school, he's got to be like 1920. You know, I mean, because that's what most people would be going to college. For sure. Like so he, we, were not, we, were not was, we were not saying he was 18. We were saying as of his 18th birthday, he could come and pick this thing up. And he was just now getting around to it, you know. I mean, and that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Again, if you compare him to characters like Cassie and and Kristoff, and even like Franklin, like these other characters who already preexisted, it makes sense that he's not just eighteen. Right, right. And a lot of people were calling us on it as if we had done the math wrong or something. And one, I'll say, hey, we didn't. We really weren't trying to do math. <laughs> we were trying to keep it as open as possible. But, you know, there, there are certain comments like that that people thought we were committing to, and that's not what that line says. That, that line doesn't say he's 18 now. It says as of his 18th birthday, he could come and claim this thing. So. <laughs> One thing that uh, strikes me about reading the Gold 12 issues again, and again, this is something you don't see as much anymore, but you get, like, full stories in almost every issue. Like, you have a multi-part epic, obviously, as well, but, like, you know, you get the first issue, it's complete full story the second issue same thing like and that seems like a very lost art but uh, it made me feel like you got so much more because you had complete stories and so you got a lot of adventures even though you only had 12 issues well and that's that's Tom DeFalco I mean he's uh, he can structure a story like nobody's business and that was always his part of it was you know deciding on the final structure and we were very much as in all our work uh, inspired by the early days of Marvel so yeah we tried to give you a complete story every issue but we would also start B stories or we would start subplots that would run through an issue or two until they became the main plot and on and on you know I mean uh, we started the mystery of something in the basement you know, and that ran for what two or three issues before we actually told you what it was. Yep. You know that kind of thing. Because um, uh, I, I believe as early as issue three, I think. Uh, I think Eric right. Harkness was picking up on it. Yeah. You know? So. 
one uh, question I always had is that in terms of like planning forward, like with a lot of these single issues, you introduce like another character who ends up becoming an ally, and obviously that comes into a play in a big way in issue twelve. How far in advance did you guys kind of know that you were going to bring back the allies to kind of be this second wave to assist in the team, or is that kind of natural? That was we we were as surprised as anybody when we got canceled. Um, you know, we, we would have loved to have continued on, but when the time came and, and the word came down that we were only going to do twelve, then we decided that was a nice kind of a nice way to uh, to kind of bring it full circle mm-hmm. and. Uh, and bring those other characters back for you know it just it, it, it suggests that the Avengers were an ever changing roster and and on and on. No, I mean uh, I I was not lucky enough to be a part of the later uh, Anex miniseries and stuff, but uh, you know that was always something that I was all for was the the roster changing just like it did in the original Avengers. You know that there would be. Uh, new characters introduced and all this kind of stuff. I, I mean, I, I played a, a smaller, much smaller role behind the scenes. I had originally conceived of uh, a daughter for Thor um, in my uh, in some of my sketches and everything. Uh, so when she finally did show up, Ron Lim was working off of those sketches. He had made adaptations of his own, which okay. is only right. He was the one that was handling the character. Mm-hmm. Uh, originally, the name I had for her was Thera, uh, T-H-E-R-A, uh, which I thought was a nice kind of sort of Thor-sounding, but not. Uh, Tom ended up going with Thena, and I don't, I don't know at the time whether he realized that that was already the name of a character in the Eternals. Oh, <laughs> um, but but in in my head now I have this you know story we could tell at some point if anybody cared where Thor actually named his daughter after the leader of the uh, Eternals uh, upon the signing of some peace treaty or something like that you know uh, but yeah you know there's a lot of characters in the Marvel Universe they're a little hard to keep track of sometimes yeah well it shows how much of a consummate storyteller you are that you know, you're already kind of thinking of other ideas that, you know, maybe it'll never happen, but like already trying to think of like, well, this would be cool if this did this. Like that shows how much yeah. of a creative person you are that, you know, you hear something like that and you're like, well, how can I make this another story? Well, yeah, that's when you're doing monthly comics, that's where you, that's where the ideas come from. The ideas, hopefully, you know, every idea you all, if you have a choice between three ideas, pick the one that could that rolls the farthest. Mm-hmm. You know that has legs that can that can take you to another story or suggests another story or another story or another story. Anytime you're deciding what happens next in your story, pick the one that opens other doors to other stories. And so, yeah, when when Tom did that, I, I, my brain immediately went to now. Why would he name? his daughter after the leader of the Eternals and you know there's a story there you know you come up with that I mean if you really want to be dirty about it maybe Sif wasn't her mother I don't know you know maybe maybe seen as her mother I don't know (laughs) I don't know exactly how much we were committed to because as I said I I wasn't as uh, I wasn't involved directly in Last Hero Standing or Last Planet Standing or any of those miniseries, so I don't remember what has exactly been established or not. Mm. Um, 
what's what's funny is when you try to establish things, people are slow on the uptake. Like with uh, Magus, uh, Doc Magus. Yeah. you know, we wanted to do this second generation mystic and everything. And Tom in the first issue, refer, uh, Dr. Strange calls him Dormagus, uh, which is the same, you know, prefix as Dormammu. Mm-hmm. And uh, there are other suggestions made about, you know, uh, who this kid might be. And we had a lot of people writing in and guessing who they are. And, and Tom thought it was so obvious that he actually at one point said, when you add two and two, do you always get 22? You know, that kind of thing. Because, you know, I, at this point, I guess we can say it. I mean, I, I don't know how much it was ever established. in Because I, I know Dormagus also appeared in, um, in J2 a few times. But he, he is the, the son of... Doctor Strange and uh, Clea, mm-hmm. because Clea was from the Dark Dimension. Ah, yes, of course. So she was from the same place Dormammu was. So that's why her son has the same prefix on the name. Um, and Tom also wanted something that sounded like Magus, so he could go to Doc Magus, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, but yes, he was. That's why his hairstyle looked a little like his mom's, and uh, yeah. and and he was, you know why he was given the responsibility of being the Sorcerer Supreme at such a young age is because of his uh, bloodline. So uh, we all, we thought it was pretty obvious, but there were a few, there were a few fans that didn't feel it was quite that obvious, I guess. So. <laughs> um, a question about the, uh, the second issue. So you get to do kind of the, the classic Cree century look. Um, how much fun is that to kind of draw? It's a you know big hulking kind of alien robot. So did you get, was it fun to kind of stretch that leg? Um, and that issue, that character, John Foster of the Earth Century, mm-hmm. is based on an idea I had when I was a kid. Oh, really? Where I, I had this idea where I was playing with the idea of like a Green Lantern type outfit of people, and they were called Sentries. And, you know, that an Earthman would be the, the first Earthman to be chosen to be one of these Sentries. And one of the elements of the costume, it was never, it wasn't like design genius by any way, shape, or form. But I had been influenced and had used the wider belt that Gene Colan drew on the original Captain Marvel green and white outfit Mm. on my little century character, right? So when we started playing with ideas, I said, you know what? I could bring that idea full circle. We can do Earth century. We can give them the white and green outfit and uh, you know and have some fun with that and uh, so there was a a seed of that in you know an old idea I had when I was a kid drawn creating my own superheroes and uh, Tom was very forgiving of uh, of that and and took what was le- took what were legitimate ideas and and we turned it into something that I thought worked really well for for the MC2 um, no, this might be more of a question for Tom, I guess. But like, what kind? What did? How did you guys decide to make it again? Kind of another legacy character. In this case, it was Bill Foster's son. Like, what? What? Instead of just making it a whole different character, what made you guys kind of decide to have it still have a legacy connection? Yeah, well, because that's kind of was I think. Uh, I, I can remember at one point uh, somebody wrote in and said, you know, does every character have to be the son or daughter of an existing Marvel character? And Tom's answer was. No, they don't have to be, but that's kind of our thing. <laughs> so I don't remember whose 
idea that was to, to pull in Bill Foster. It might have been mine. It might have been Tom's. I'm not sure. But, you know, we, we wanted to work with as many Avengers-types characters, you know, characters that were involved with the Avengers and stuff, and try to keep some kind of a, of a family feel and a sense of history and, a, and that sense of legacy uh, as active as we possibly could at all times. So, I, you know... If there was a character in the Avengers past, in the Avengers catalog, that would serve a function, then we were quick to go there uh, to maintain that, that legacy feel. Mm-hmm. So I, I think it came from that as much as anything. Now, the third issue has, a, again, a very kind of classic homage cover, which is very cool. With Again, you have Anax going up against the original Defenders. Was this a pretty easy cover to come up with? Yeah. I mean, I... I, I don't dislike homage covers. I like uh, calling back the glory days of, of any given title. And, uh, you know, I, I think it, it worked in this case because of the Submariner and the Hulk being overlapping characters and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's kind of why we did what we did. Um, you know, certainly the story itself bears no resemblance to the original Avengers number three. But uh, that was... You know, that was a fun story. I, you know, as I said in our last interview, I mean, one of the reasons that I'm so fond of this strip is because Tom was busy being the editor of the entire MC2 line of all three books and scripting all three books as well. So there was uh, a, a bit more of a percentage of my contribution to the plots and where the character arcs were going and, you know... How people, how one character felt about another character, and all that kind of stuff, and uh, that was, uh, you know, I remember being very involved in the storytelling and and being very involved in uh, putting in liner notes, which you know is, means I'm sending a, a, a set of xeroxes to Tom with some of my suggested dialogue written in. I, I would never suggest that I dialogue an entire issue because I'm not a writer. I mean, if I have ideas for dialogue, I'll put them in, but the stuff I don't have ideas for, Tom gets paid for that, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I remember that issue being a, a big issue for me as far as uh, Kevin really stepping up and kind of taking a leadership role. And then there were, there were moments in that third issue that I just really enjoyed um, uh, Kevin talking about how his father had met Doctor Strange you know, which again happened in the Thor run. Um, the uh, Kevin reminding Doctor Strange when he tries to put him in a magic bubble that Kevin's power is also magic, 100% as Guardian approved. <laughs> you know, things like that. And I and I enjoyed you know introducing Doc Magus as a as a more uh, uh, a, a looser version of Doctor Strange. You know, as kind of a punk kid version of Doctor Strange, so, you know, I, I don't know where that fell. I don't think we were in any way influenced by Harry Potter, but I, maybe we were. I don't know. Hmm. I, don't, I don't remember offhand. A question uh, I had about I, the design you use for the older, the older Doctor Strange here. So on on his kind of forehead, you have the kind of the classic kind of uh, symbol of the um, the Sanctum Sanctorum. Was that like that was an interesting but very cool small visual design choice? What kind of led you to do that? Uh, 
well, one of the things that led me to it was the original sketches. I remember because I, I ended up going with the headpiece. The original sketch was he had that as a, a either a scar or a tattoo on his forehead, and he was bald now. Oh, and I thought that was a that that would have necessitated some explanation. I mm. felt you know. So I instead went with the headpiece with the symbol on it and everything. I mean, that's just one of the. Isn't that a symbol of the Vachanti or something like that? I don't know what they. Something like what that. I, I know it's on the Sanctum, but yeah, yeah, no, it probably is. Yeah, I'm not that deep in, in the Doctor Strange myth uh, stuff, to tell you the truth. But I mean, the fact that it was that window design and everything, I thought that would be kind of cool, something to carry through. Uh, for for the other elements, I just went with uh, his oldest costume from mm. the early Ditko stories with the, the square amulet that wasn't the Eye of Agamotomo and, and the blue cape I liked a lot. Uh, he actually, the, the red gloves and the red sash, that was a simple miscommunication. In my sketches, they were orange, but when you make a, back then when you made a full color Xerox, you didn't have as much control over the color. Mm. So when I made my full-color Xeroxes to send to the office, those the, the orange gloves and the orange sash were reading as red to the colorist. At one point early on, uh, there was an early appearance of the Fantastic Five where they actually colored the thing red because of the way the the uh, full-color Xerox uh, oh, really? wow. yeah, came out. And, and Tom said, I said to the colorist, I don't know why you colored them red, but it's just a thing. It's the same orange as the regular thing. And they said, well, we colored them red because of the sketch. And he went, uh, no, that's supposed to be orange, trust me. Because <laughs> we had never talked about the thing being a different color. So. No. Um, a question I had about uh, your the way you drew the Hulk, and I do not mean this in any way of disrespect, but it felt like you were kind of, kind of going for like a Buscema kind of a Sal Buscema kind of look to the Hulk. Maybe I'm wrong, but just in terms of no, no, of- I wanted to. I was doing the Crossroads Hulk. Okay. I, I loved the, the the more bestial Crossroads Hulk, um, and Tom and I had not discussed it. So when he scripted it. His favorite Hulk was always, he always felt the Hulk was scarier when he was more intelligent. Okay. And less childlike and, you know, would make threats and and, and all this kind of stuff. Um, So we we kind of ended up combining elements of all the different Hulks. Um, But I always loved what Sal and uh, uh, Jerry Talayuk, or however you pronounce that gentleman's name, uh, the work they were doing on those crossroads stories when the Hulk was just a beast. And uh, it, it just had, there was so much more expression of rage in that face that I liked it. And that's where I got the cracked lips from and everything. But there were actually some people that wrote in and got the impression that I was trying to suggest that the Hulk was now 20 years older, so he had wrinkles. Oh. <laughs> and that is not what I was trying to suggest. <laughs> That's funny. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought of that. <laughs> um, when, well, there you go. See, we're not thinking, Adam. No, apparently not. Um, we were talking earlier. Or we I did was, have, I, I did do a, a, a Facebook post not all that long ago where I did have plans for Bruce Banner's son, David. Hmm. Uh, he shows up in like three panels in yeah. this issue. And we established that, you know, that Bruce has, hasn't been the Hulk in years and that he does have a young son. And, I, I mean, I had an idea packed away in the back of my head uh, of a series 
called La David and the Green Goliath that uh, <laughs> was um, there was an ad, a, a, a second gamma ray accident bonded them uh, and uh, it gave David green hair and he and his dad would travel the country and uh, he would be part of uh, part of the adventures but you know I mean we never had a chance to explore any of any of those kind of concepts or ideas MC2 unfortunately just didn't last long enough no now in that uh, in that third issue I was talking before about um, how you did some great acting especially on J2 it feels like J2 gets a lot of great kind of moments because of he is such an expressive character and how you guys really did kind of accentuate how excited he was about everything so when he you know kind of punches out the Hulk and when he looks it down at his fist of being like whoa I did this did you catch this I did this that's just a priceless look yeah. because it's just a such simple line work but or maybe not simple but it just you really convey that sheer like I just did this oh my god yeah yeah who the man who the you know and then Tom's response from that was uh, that would be Hulk <laughs> but uh, it was yeah it was a lot of fun doing that character and, and juxtaposing between this good natured you know 13, 14 year old and the powerhouse that he could become you know uh, in that second issue we did the thing where he he has to occasionally turn back to Zane. So we did the thing with the masked midget, you know, where he put on a ski <laughs> yeah. mask and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but he was a, a wonderful character to play with. And since Tom was doing, you know, uh, a slightly more tongue-in-cheek treatment in the actual J2 book, it was a lot of fun for, for us to, to kind of play with some of the 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 team dynamic of how he was relating to the rest of the team and how easy it would be for him to feel like he shouldn't be there, you know, which we seeded in that uh, second issue, you know, and, and uh, so yeah, it was it was a lot of fun. Uh, and, and anytime you're doing a team, you that's where you have to like pick your dynamics. And it was always what was always interesting to me was, <laughs> pardon me, people feel the need to to uh, ship characters, you know, to pair them off and everything. Mm -hmm. And we had suggested at one point in the run that there was an attraction between American Dream and Thunderstrike. And somebody wrote in and said, now all you got to do is get Cassie and Zane together. And because there was the scene where uh, in the fourth issue where he's feeling dejected, she goes out to talk to him and says, no, everything's fine. You saved my life. You were scared, but you came back and you saved my life. And you're an Avenger, my, you know, blah blah blah. And everybody somehow saw that as this was going to be a beginning of them being in a relationship. Zane is like fourteen at the best. <laughs> Cassie is is a scientist working in a lab with her father. She's got to be in her early twenties. For sure. Really? <laughs> really? Uh, so that was always bizarre to me, you know, when people would do that. Um, I did have plans for Kevin and for Shannon, uh, but it, they weren't going to be great ones because Shannon was attracted to Thunderstrike. Mm. Shannon is like six one. Okay, she's a statuesque, gorgeous, blonde woman. And she doesn't change into something else, okay? 
Kevin, when he's Thunderstrike, is somewhere between 6'2 and 6'5, you know, that kind of thing. He's built like a crap house, all that kind of stuff, right? Yeah. yeah. But he's, that's not really who he is. He's really Kevin Masterson, who's like 5'10 and built like a regular schmo <laughs> and goes to art college. So. I, I was kind of interested in the possibility of playing with that dynamic that, you know, yes, Shannon was attracted to Thunderstrike, not so much to Kevin, you know, that kind of thing. Um, in in the third issue, we have the kind of I guess the major revelation at the time that uh, mainframe you know was a robot or at least this body was. How early again in the process did you guys know he's going to be a robot? No one's going to know about this, and we're going to slowly seed it. Or how quickly did that element develop? We, we I had our our idea up front was that he was uh, he was AI. Um, we never really seriously considered any son of or anything like that you know, we thought, I thought it was interesting a couple of people guessed that he was Jarvis mm. uh, from the first issue because you know Jarvis would have sent out the the, uh, the distress signal and all that kind of jazz but uh, so you know there were a lot of different guesses and uh, even in the second issue Zane comes right out and says are you related to Tony Stark or Jim Rhodes you know that kind of thing but uh, no I I my memory of it is that we never seriously considered making him human. We, it was, we were always dealing with the idea that he was, I, I believe they put it, some kind of cross between an, a robot and an android. You know, that kind of thing. That's right, yeah. Well, and that shot where you have the Hulk and uh, Namor splitting their armor in half, like that's something about it. Like, again, there's so many small details in there. It, like, you really feel like it's happening. Like, it doesn't feel... I, again, I guess it's because you you put so much different line work in there and so many kind of little bits and pieces that it looks like it really is cleaving it in half as opposed to like looking more generic. Well, thank you very much. That's what we were going for. Uh, yeah, it, that was a scene that I, I I was very pleased with the way you know a lot of these stories paced out and the way we were revealing different things. I mean, of course, it was still a couple of issues before mainframe cop to anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, were, they figured he was still human. He was just using robot doppelgangers sometimes, you know, things like that. Uh, it, was, it was, wasn't was until what, like issue seven or eight that... Uh, I think it was seven, yeah. That he, uh, that we found out that he uses robot doppelgangers, but they were all robots, yeah. It w- now, I don't know if this is just me reading too much into it, so I forgive me, but in that shot where you do have him being cleaved in half, um, on the on the left side of the page, it almost feels like the way you drew the face and the armor, that uh, like he's still resolved at that point, and then on the other side, it looks more like, oh, crap. <laughs> and maybe that's just me reading into it. But it's almost like one half of him, is, well, it's still resolved, and it's almost like it's as it's happening. Again, like the fluidity of the page, where if you read it left to right, it's as it's about to be happening is kind of that one side. And then you have this tear happening on the same panel, and then you have this other side kind of looking more alarmed. And I don't know if that's just me reading into it, or if that was part of the kind of the idea I, there. I will tell you the truth. I, I'm pretty sure that was deliberate on my part. Uh, I love doing... As a storytelling device, there I, I like taking the two halves of a face, and you know, because that, that's something you see in real pictures. 
you know. Uh, in a lot of it, in this case, it has to do with like the angle on the face as much as anything. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I will, I have been known to play with that a lot. Like if you're talking about the like the tragic man trapped inside the monster of the Hulk on one side of the face. I will look at it and make it look angry. You know, I'll arch the eyebrow and and all that kind of stuff. But on the other side, I'll let the eyebrow come up and it just looks like an expression, but one half is definitely still the monster, one half is the man trapped inside. You know, and it, it can be a very effective storytelling tool. So in this case, it was. I mean, I, it was using, taking benefit of the fact that the, 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 the American eye anyway goes from left to right. <laughs> and you you see the, uh, the reaction of, <laughs> basically of the character being ripped in two. Yes. <laughs> so... But uh, you know, it, it, I, I thought that was a pretty, a fairly strong concept with mainframe. I, I enjoyed that quite a bit, and uh, I don't know. I think it was. I don't think I, maybe it wasn't until the twelfth issue that we found out that he was Unit One One Three Eight or something like that. I yeah, use, yeah. I think that's a Tony. I always thing. use eleven thirty eight when I need a number for something. So really, what is it about that number? THX eleven thirty eight. Oh, of course. Lucas. Oh. <laughs> Makes sense. I, it's just it just sticks in my head, so it's one that I use a lot. You know, I mean, uh, I remember putting it on a plane in an issue of uh, Indiana Jones that I did, <laughs> and uh, things like that. So, I, I, it's the only that's really the only reason that he was Unit One One Three Eight. No, at what point did you and Tom know again? Like, so we go into issue four, and you add new characters to the team, and the it's American Dream and her astounding Dream Team, which is great naming um what um what was the process of kind of coming up with those characters um how much of like with like the naming alone like was that just you or tom or how much of that was you kind of spitballing ideas together and then how did you actually break down these uh, brand new characters? there was a lot of me spitballing ideas but i can't take a lot of credit for it i mean there were, there were all, we had several readers wrote in who were very bored with us at that point and decided, okay, the original team was a Thor wannabe, a big, strong guy like the Hulk, an Iron Man, and an Ant-Man Wasp, okay? And then you have the next wave of characters, and it's uh, Captain America wannabe, and a Hawkeye guy, <laughs> and a, a Scarlet Witch and, and Quicksilver. And, and, you know, the point was, yeah, <laughs> that's, that's what we were doing. We were trying to make it a little more fun than that. But uh, but if you're just that turned off by the whole concept, then this probably isn't the book for you. So, But that's exactly what it was. I mean, you know, we were trying to come up with, whether they related or not, we were trying to come up with, you know, fresh new versions of those kinds of uh, iconic types of characters that would be like the second wave, Cap's kooky quartet, you know, actually I like the name Dream Team a lot more than Cap's kooky quartet, but uh, <laughs> that's just me, um, but, and, uh, you know, I mean, and that was also the earliest mention in the fourth issue, there's a mention of, they were suggested by somebody whose opinion means a lot, and then later in the issue, Shannon thanks Jarvis for helping them you know, for, for vouching for them. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people thought that, oh, we were referring to Jarvis when we said somebody whose opinion means a lot. But no, we found out later, who were we referring to, Adam? We were referring to Hawkeye, of course. Yes. 
the man who trained them because you know we we kind of were slow it, we thought that kind of stuff was obvious but you know some people it wasn't as obvious as other people but yes it was Hawkeye that trained the entire dream team and uh, it kind of as a way of putting together his own team of Avengers mm-hmm. and that's why or in those early issues Shannon is reacting to wait a minute they're all, they're, there's an Avengers now now we can move you know now we can make our move and become part of this larger group and uh, yeah so that was uh, that was a lot of fun but yeah it, we really weren't trying to reinvent the wheel we were just trying to have some fun with his characters and stuff I uh, I liked Brandon a lot uh Brandon Cross, the, the, the freebooter. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was another character. That was one of the names that Steve Rogers considered when he came up with Nomad. Oh. And it always stuck with me as a really cool name for a I, character like I that. I didn't even realize that. Yeah, yeah, that was one of the ones when he was uh, at Sharon's parents' place and he was working on the costume and he was throwing names out for himself. Uh, freebooter was one of them. Now, but, uh, looking at the cover to number four, so again, it's a classic homage cover. So again, you just did one in issue three, and now you're doing another one, which I feel like it kind of it was a no-brainer, right? Like you're going to bring in other characters, you're going to kind of do an, an homage to uh, what is it, Avengers sixteen? So why wouldn't you use the same cover design, right? Right. So in this, that's all I was thinking. Yeah. Yeah, like it makes sense, it's, and it's it's a great cover. So first of all, I love American Dream. I've always loved her design. It's simple, but it works. Um, was it? So here she has hair, and obviously at the end of the series, it kind of gets clipped off during a, a climactic battle. Um, what kind of made you decide to, to give her the, the long hair that kind of came out of the costume? So originally, to give her the long hair? Yeah. Um, I, 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 I was working too hard to avoid the obvious. Um, when, we, when I first conceived of the idea of doing a female Captain America, I was playing with a bunch of different ideas, and one of them was a black girl with, with no hair sticking out the back. Okay. Um, and what I didn't like at the time, which I look back on it now and it's probably something I shouldn't have worried about, is I didn't like the way the brown skin looked against the blue, the medium blue of the suit. Mm-hmm. And I... So I, I, I kept playing with different ideas. We had a lot of different ideas, a lot of different ideas for names, a lot of different ideas of approach. But it, at one point, what it, what occurred to me, and which I thought was something that and Tom ended up responding to it well, was we didn't we weren't going to make her related to Steve Rogers. We didn't know enough about Steve Rogers to to have a cousin or something like that, but. Sharon Carter was right there. And I said, well, yeah, wait a minute. Okay, she's she's related to, to Sharon Carter. And that, and that right there just said, well, then screw it. I'm going to make her a statuesque blonde. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we just kind of went with it from there. When we clipped off her hair at the end of the series... My intention, and again, I wasn't I wasn't directly involved in the next time they appeared in like next year uh, or last year of standing and all that kind of stuff, because my intention moving forward was that she would keep her hair short as Shannon, mm. and the blonde hair would become a wig, so that she could have a sec- more of a secret identity. Oh, okay. And uh, that was my original intention, and I did sketches along those lines. But when it came time for uh, for Pat Olive to pencil uh, Last Hero Standing, he 
wasn't crazy about that idea and he wasn't worried about it so he just drew her with her hair having grown back okay uh, she only appeared a few times I, I had also come up with a different design it only showed up once in a pinup in a spider girl annual there was a, a pinup of spider girl fighting the avengers and the team involved uh cole tiger and a different design of american dream where her costume was a darker blue and she had no hair sticking out okay and and that was a, a thought i had of because she promises herself in issue 11 if being a soldier is the only way i could rid the universe of scum like you then a soldier is what i'll be or something like that so i i kind of saw shannon is possibly going through a a darker uh, a darker time you know a, a, a more serious uh, approach to everything which ended up not being the way the character went because the book got cancelled and, and she ended up in the hands of of DeFalco and uh, and Todd Nock and Pat Olive and, and a bunch of other people so mm-hmm. yeah. say Absolutely. Um, now, the other characters, you got Blue Streak, you got Freebooter, and you got Crimson Curse. Um, again, it's very obvious where the kind of the idea or the inspiration for those characters came from because of who they're kind of taking up those spots. But um, how much kind of design work did you go through to kind of perfect um, their end, uh, their final design? I, uh, I remember uh, Freebooter being kind of a no-brainer. I'm an old Space Ghost fan, and I like, <laughs> you know, I like the outline of that mask. Uh, so that kind of worked for me, and, and I kind of built the costume around it. You know, it's kind of cro- doing a cross between the swordsman and and, uh, and Hawkeye, um, which were two. You know, I love those characters. Uh, and and Crimson Curse. I remember it was my idea to make her uh, a Harkness, uh, but we never did get around to explaining if she was an albino or not, you know, because she had the white skin and mm-hmm. would occasionally be shown with red eyes and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. The red eyes weren't my original idea, but, I mean, we may well have gotten around to telling you at some point that she was born an albino. I don't know. But, um, yeah, I mean, they, they really did come from the root of that and, uh, and, and dealing with, you know, what a second-generation character might be like. I mean, I don't think... Personality wise, I don't think they were the same as their as their roots. You know, I think oh, they no. were very different Definitely characters. Not. Yeah, no, and no. I liked the way they interacted. I liked the way that Brandon and, and Blue kind of came across as a brother and sister. You know, carpeted each other, and 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 uh, Shannon kind of came across as the oldest sister, the older sister who was constantly going Blue Streak, <laughs> and telling her to mind herself, you know, and all that kind of stuff, and. Uh, and we kind of, you know, we're using, you know, at least she was a mutant, you know, much like uh, Wanda and Pietro were. Mm-hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we were kind of going with the, the basics, you know. I mean, given time, I would have gotten Big Man into the team and we would have had a giant in there, too, because when I think of the Avengers, I always... One of my favorite periods of the Avengers was the Vision, Scarlet Witch, Pietro, and Clint Barton as, uh, as Goliath, you know. Uh, as much as the original team that had Giant Man in it, mm-hmm. so you know, we we might have gotten there sooner or later, but you know there was no later. 
unfortunately. Uh, now, in issue four, you have uh, one of my favorite, I guess, visual gags of the series when uh, you have uh, J2 and Thunderstrike are uh, trying to land, I guess, not even Avengers Quinjet. I don't know exactly what it was. Um, uh, actually, it's one, it's one of the Wakandan ships. That, is it? Uh, yeah, it was originally introduced to the, it was originally Kirby's design for a, uh, for a Wakandan airship that the Fantastic Four then had a model that they had hung on to and I since we were dealing with Wakanda I thought it would be kind of cool to throw it in there so <laughs> so you have uh, J2 you know and Thunderstriker trying to land the thing in the middle of New York and so you just have J2 sh- shove his uh, his feet out through the bottom so basically manually breaking and I just thought that was a great visual gag always worked in the Flintstones well that's that's my thought too right <laughs> <laughs> Just thinking that, but it's just so funny. It's just like I'm going to hit the brakes, and then later when they try to like, uh, I guess take off with it, he just someone makes a comment that oh, it took a little while to get it going again. Yes, exactly. <laughs> no, I, I, that was I was having a lot of fun with the characters being younger, and you know, I, our we we were definitely the. I believe it's even in that issue that Tachaka observes that his father always spoke of the Avengers as being a team of superstars who occasionally joined a common cause, but this team already seems to be more like a family. Mm-hmm. And that's really what we were going for. Uh, you know, the, the family you're born into and the family you choose. And that these people were, you know, very, they're good people. Kevin's a great guy. Cassie's a terrific girl. All the, you know, that we had these good people that were, they were teaming up because they wanted to, because they they were uh, honoring a uh, you know uh, uh, what am I what's the word I'm looking for? My goodness, <laughs> uh, a cause. The Avengers was a cause for them, you know, <laughs> that there should always be Avengers, and the Avengers made a real impression on the world and on pop culture and on you know everything. So they were proud to carry this on and, and I think issue four was also when mainframe reminded everybody that it's it's uh, it's a privilege not a right mm-hmm. you know that nobody owns the Avengers you know that kind of thing and uh, that they have to be open to the to, to the possibility of new members and all this kind of stuff and it's not just going to be them forever in their own little private club and uh, you know so I enjoyed all those aspects of what we were trying to say about the Avengers because mm-hmm. you know, depending on when you came into comics, the Avengers was a big deal. You know, I mean, uh, even when you know when Roy Thomas brought in the Vision and brought in outside characters like that, you were it was always made very clear what a privilege it was to be an Avenger. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and I know a lot of longtime readers that I speak to, you know, are kind of disturbed by the fact that now it appears it feels like if you appear in the book you're now you're an Avenger you know that kind of thing uh, which I understand I mean I get that but it, it, that doesn't take away from me the fact that they are the premier group of the Marvel Universe and uh, you know they uh, they've always been treated as such and these people were you know treating that with a certain reverence as well you know mm-hmm. uh, and, and it was also important to me that we always kept in mind that I, I believe at one point Shannon even says to Jarvis, he's the heart and soul of the team. And I would, I would never have considered doing this book the way we did it without Jarvis being one of the characters. In it. Hmm. 
Well, for sure. Yeah, he. I mean, he's always well. He usually he's always there. Uh, in more modern times, I feel like he's kind of been not shuffled off, but he doesn't maybe show up as much or hasn't been used as much. But like, I like how you guys again use him here as he's he's kind of that that as you said the heart. You know, he's kind of the soul of the Avengers because yep. he's always been there. Yeah, and and because they're younger characters coming in, everybody treats him as such. He's kind of the. He's the sir, you know. He's the uh, what, what do you want to call him? He's he's the uh, the 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 the, uh, the RA of the dormitory, <laughs> that kind of thing. Absolutely, everybody, you know, people defer to him because he is he's earned that. You know, he's chief of staff of the Avengers Museum now and the, in the mansion itself, and uh, you know, I, but he's also being torn. I mean, I liked the fact that he was the only one that knew how to try to get a hold of Tony Stark and and all that kind of stuff, and that he was having his own doubts about you know putting these young people in danger and everything. And uh, I, I, when we did finally did have him coming back face to face with Tony Stark, he was he was in Stark's face about it. You know, I, I think Hawkeye even made a comment about what's that? What's the matter, Stark? The help getting uppity? You yeah, know, that kind of thing. And, uh, <laughs> Because Jarvis wasn't just a butler anymore. You no. know, he didn't have to respect that. He didn't have to respect his own station anymore. He said what he thought. For sure. Now, in, in this issue that we're speaking of, so again, issue four, we have the, the introduction of Cole Tiger, the son of the Black Panther. Was there any inclination to just make him the new Black Panther, or why did you guys decide to make him a, a different name? Well, we went with Cole Tiger for the simple reason that there, there was that sketch that was circulating that showed that one of the of uh, Kirby's original names for Black Panther was Cole Tiger, okay. which is it's just another thing that people have been known to call a Panther, um, and we liked that idea. We we thought it was kind of a way to pay homage to to Jack's original concept, you know, that kind of thing. Um, but we also were going with the idea that the Panther route has started to have more and more of an impact over the generations. Mm. You know, uh, the fact that T'Chaka is named after T'Challa's father, but that T'Challa spent most of his life uh, using the, the, the Panther route and, and having the powers, that he it's starting to cause a, a mutation or a, an evolution of the Panther power in the offspring and stuff, uh, is what we were trying to suggest. And uh, yeah, I mean, we, if if we could come up with another name, we went up with we we came up with another name. It was always Tom's idea to not to reuse an existing trademark, but to come up with a new one. You know, that's that's why the Lady Hawks in uh, Spider Girl weren't called the Falcons. You know, mm. that kind of thing. That's he true. always if we could, if we could come up with something that would be their own trademark, that's what he wanted to do. So that certainly continued into. Next. How um, so? In the fifth issue, when you bring in, uh, well, you have Doctor Doom on the cover. Um, w- the minute you like, w- at what point were you guys like, we got to use Doctor Doom, and obviously it's got to be Kristoff, like because of Cassie. Like, was that pretty early on in the process that like we, we got to use Doctor Doom? We've already alluded to it in the third issue that there's something happened with Submariner, or like yeah. what kind of brought up that decision to use uh, a version of Doom and then make it Kristoff? 
Well, again, I mean, Kristoff was one of the cast of characters that Tom had dealt with in uh, in his Fantastic Four run. So we were very aware with uh, of where he was in the continuity. <clears throat> and uh, and you're right, we had already we had pre-established that you know that's what that's the issue where we find out in more detail what happened to Latveria as a result of what Doctor Doom had done to Atlantis and everything. Uh, and so, yeah, it was all kind of planned from the beginning that uh, we'd be dealing with Kristoff's uh, responsibility to the legacy of Doom that he was stuck with and all that kind of jazz. Mm-hmm. So that, that story kind of, you know, it ended up kind of being a Christmas story and everything that, uh, that, that, that just kind of worked out well for where the characters were placed at that time and everything. And, uh, you know, they, uh, I, I liked the... Uh, the, the, the tension between uh, Cassie and the and the new crew and and uh, all of it I, I thought played out really well. It's one of my favorite issues of the run uh, for the ending. Um, mm. I I really enjoyed the ending that we put together for that, where you you never see the doll that the little girl is holding until the very end, and you see that it's a Father Christmas doll that you know, has a green robe and all of that kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, it's, and it was uh, Santa Claus made the <laughs> made the snow and the light show and all that kind of stuff. And, mm-hmm. and the, what, what the, uh, the, the S.H.I.E.L.D. agent turns on and goes, is that the story you're going with, that Santa Claus blew the castle, the kingdom come? <laughs> and, and, uh, and American Dream decides to back up Stinger on that one and said, yes, sir, Santa Claus, like the kid says. So uh, it was a nice little bonding moment between Stinger and American Dream. But I, that's the thing. I, what I don't get with a lot of storytelling these days, and what, what really appeals to me when storytelling, that I think is what storytelling does right, is you should never drag things out too long. I mean, it would have been very easy to just keep American Dream and Stinger at each other's throat. Mm. But let's not. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Let's... Let's let these characters be intelligent, thoughtful women who are dealing with what they're dealing with and give them these moments so we can move forward. Because when somebody drags out an idea for too long, it gives me the impression they're worried they don't have any more ideas. Mm. And that is not something you, you want to give the reader time to think you know you don't want to give the reader time to think well maybe this is all they got <laughs> you know that kind of thing because you you have to challenge yourself to keep coming up with new stuff with, with you know with with new ideas and, mm-hmm. and adding new characters and, and and playing with the dynamics between different characters and all that kind of stuff you know? Oh, for sure. Um, now, speaking of character d- dynamics, so in this issue, you have um, one of my favorite moments in the series when you have uh, Kevin and Zane go to um, uh, Eric's uh, 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 cemetery plot. Grave. I don't know why. Yeah, right. grave. Thank you. I don't know why I couldn't come up with that easy word. Uh, and they're just standing there, and you have that uh, that moment in the third panel where you just have uh, J two just put his arm on Thunderstrike's uh, arm, and I don't know why, but that's just it's such a great. Moment, and I love that at that time you don't get in Zane's head. Um, like you do the panel before, where he's like, "I don't even know what I'm supposed to do here." I'm like, how, "What do I do?" He looks so sad, and then you just, I guess, 
you don't even have to get into his head. You just know that he's come to the decision that this is what I need to do here. This is I need to be here. And he just puts his arm on his shoulder, and just the 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 again the acting you have on Kevin's uh, face is just phenomenal. Like you just you can feel the emotion. All right, I, I believe at that time we're we're inside Kevin's head at that point. That's right, and he and it, it helps him acknowledge that he's made friends, that he has this family. And that's kind of what we were going with, is that, you know, we needed to take a moment and then kind of check in with where all these characters stood this far, because there are age differences going on here and mm-hmm. stuff, you know. Um, but I uh, I enjoyed those sequences, too, very much so. Uh, the uh, I threw in the fact that Kevin had a cat. Um, yeah. Kevin's cat's name was Alex, and that was the name of my f- my roommate at the time. Oh, really? uh, I had a cat. I had a great cat named Alex, <laughs> uh, who was very loud. So in that first <laughs> panel, when you see him going, Rawr! that was Alex. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was somebody that I, uh, from my own life, that I uh, added into the comic. And I don't think Alex really cared. But anyway, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but yeah, it was a wonderful moment uh, because we really wanted to fill it with as much Avengers action as possible. But I wanted, you know, we, we also wanted to. Tip to, to check in with what the dynamic was with Kevin and his family and uh, you know and I'm really really glad given that the, the book only went 12 issues I'm really glad we took the opportunities that we did to to flesh out the characters mm-hmm. as much as we were able um, and you know, like, you know and, and Zane had plenty of uh, room in his own book to, to talk about his family dynamics and everything, but I liked the way that he was able to, even though he's a few years younger than Kevin and everything, he was able to give him some advice, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, it was it was important for, for Kevin to realize that, you know, here I am bitching about the dad who's trying to reach out, and some people don't have a dad at all, you know? Mm-hmm. What's interesting so, uh, about the uh, the graveside scene too is that when Zane kind of runs out of his J two juice, he's kind of like, "Well, I guess I should go because I guess I'm not useful anymore because I'm not J two And then you immediately have Kevin be like, "No, no, wait!" Uh, and he says his magic word, and then they're like, "You know, let's you know now we're just two guys. Um, we're not yep. you know it's not about the superheroes." Which again, it was a nice touch in an already very packed issue. Well, I thank you very much, man. I appreciate the fact that that you have appreciated those scenes because they those are the scenes that mean you know uh, the world to me when we're able to uh, to inject that kind of humanity into the characters because that's what Marvel Comics was always always about. So I uh, I never want to get to a point where we forget those moments. Mm-hmm. You know? When when we first see um, like a full on shot of Kristoff as Doctor Doom. Um, I'm not sure what it is, but there's just something very old school about the way that you you draw uh, Doctor Doom here. With again the where the um, his cloak or like his his green vestments are not kind of taut. There's more kind of uh, volume to them, and even the kind of the, the look of the mask looks kind of more old school. Can you speak to you know what was kind of the idea there? Because it, it kind of changes later when he kind of confronts the uh, the the Avengers. But there's just something about the very kind of old school look here. What were you going for? Yeah. I was I was working off of some of the, the earlier versions of, of the of the tunic, but I had updated the armor itself. The armor itself is is, is black and has more of a of a sheen finish to it and everything. But I, I wanted to I didn't want him to look imperious because that wasn't Kristoff, you know. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, so and, we, and I also was also working towards the punchline of. 
you know, when I was penciling it, I knew what the punchline was with the little girl relating it to Santa, you know, that kind of thing. So I was also, I, I didn't want him to be as threatening uh, a figure in his stance and all this kind of stuff. Mm. Because for some reason, the little girl, you know, because the little girl wasn't all panicked and afraid of him because he was, because of, he healed her leg and was being nice to her and everything. So I was trying to keep it, you know, uh, a little less, uh, uh, a little less imperious and more subdued and, and more human. Um, when he takes the mask off, you know, you're talking about, uh, uh, I, even if I'm not pulling reference or trying to do a likeness, I was picturing David Boreanaz as as, uh, as Christoph. Oh, that actually <laughs> makes a lot of sense. Series. Yeah, you know it's funny because I was yeah, trying that's to, who I was picturing. I was trying to think who that looked like or what kind of reference that was before because it looks it's so particular. Like it's a very interesting face, um, and I would say maybe not usually in your usual catalog of faces. So I was trying to kind of think what what was it about that, but that actually makes a lot of sense when you kind of put that uh, that in my mind. No, I thought he would be an interesting choice to play a character like that because I mean he played a character that had a lot of real darkness to him, even though he looked kind of heroic and everything, you know. So uh, I always wanted to, to do more with Kristoff. Um, you know, we, we got to touch on it when I came on to Spider-Girl and we did uh, kind of the, the third generation Fantastic Five characters and stuff. We did Ben's kids and and we had Kristoff uh, actually came in the Fantastic Five series. He actually decided to come out of hiding and decided that he would just hide in plain sight. That if he joined a team like the Fantastic Five that was very had very high visibility that nobody would mess with him mm-hmm. and uh, that so that was the way he decided to go with it so you know we played with that a little bit in Spider-Girl but that's uh, right yeah, yeah I find him a fascinating character that, you know because he still could easily be a dick at times uh, but, uh, <laughs> absolutely but you know it's yeah but, you know, when you have Dr. Doom telling you that you're the heir to all of this and everything, you know, I mean, the one thing that you couldn't blame him for was his his feelings about uh, Cassie. Mm-hmm. So. so I would say the big turning point of the series um, is issue six, because that's where I feel like it really kind of starts hurtling towards, um, you know, its eventual kind of conclusion of the mega arc or the starts seeding the, the, the kind of the arc of what happened to the original Avengers um, and eventually where our team gets to kind of go towards that. So you have, you first introduced the new character of Argo, uh, who's the son of Hercules, which again is a nice kind of touch because obviously the connection between Eric and Hercules. So now having Kevin and uh, Argo is a, is a nice uh, bit of uh, connection. Um, what did you kind of, kind of put into developing uh, the son of Hercules? What was the kind of designs that you were kind of going through? Uh, well, the, the, the big, the, the thing that we went with, that was the, that we played on, the expectation was making him very short and mm-hmm. uh, <laughs> making him uh, making him young and, and spunky and uh, and Latino. Uh, so obviously, a lot of that comes from whoever his mother was. Uh, but uh, you know, that was something that, that uh, I again I don't remember when we were making the donuts. I don't remember who contributed what, uh, other than you know, as, as far as between Tom and I. But I, I think I was the one who came up with using the name Argo, which was what the name of the ship that he sailed with the, the Argonauts on, mm-hmm. uh, sailed with Jason on. But beyond that, um, 
yeah, I mean, uh, there was, that's a character I would have liked to have touched back with and, and shown a little bit more background with and stuff. But uh, I, I, I liked Argo a lot and uh, was was eager to get him back back into the team, but we just ran out of mileage. Mm-hmm. But uh, but yeah, I, I, I mean, Hercules is a character that has a lot of elasticity when you consider the original myth and what he went through in the original myth. And if you're aware of that kind of stuff, but, but, you know, he has been through a lot. <laughs> and, uh, we just kind of wanted to echo some of that. Uh, we, we thought he would be a, a, a strong character to, uh, to, to start to tie into the original Avengers stuff and what happened with the original Avengers. Um, and I, I you know, I, I don't know. You're one of the few people I've ever talked to about the series and the series ended, so we had no other avenue, like getting letters from people or anything, to find out if they felt that the strip paid off. <clears throat> I mean, we hope it did. Yeah. You know, we, we came up with something that to explain why the Avengers broke. Mm-hmm. Um, and we thought we'd come up with something enough uh, to, uh, to explain it, but... Uh, you know, ultimately, it's up to the reader, and uh, you know, I mean, it certainly well it was a lot of fun to draw. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> so, I, but, I, I would say yeah, foreshadowing it. We foreshadowed it so much that it had to pay off. Yes, I would agree with that. Like, it, it's it's really well. Like when you first see that shot of Hercules in this issue, like that's when you're like, oh crap, what is, what has happened? Yeah, exactly. You know, and I'm very happy with what we came up with. I'm, as I was rereading it over the last few days, I was, there were some scenes that just really, I thought were, I mean, it's, it's weird to say with something that I worked on myself, but there were a couple of scenes in there that I just thought were genius. Um, and I can say that because I know Tom was the one who came up with it. Hmm. But the scene where they come back through the portal oh, yeah. and, and, Jarvis is saying, I never thought you'd meet this kind of defeat. And Iron Man says, contrary to appearances, Jarvis, we did everything we set out to do. And you see this picture of them just devastated, and he's like, we, we won. Mm-hmm. And that was Tom's idea. You know, and, and, and to, to juxtapose the shape they were in with the fact that they were victorious. You know, that kind of thing. And I, I just think that's powerful stuff oh for sure uh, one thing I really like that you did from a, a visual standpoint is when um, you had like, we saw the shot of the original Avengers kind of leaving through the portal um, and then you kind of uh, have that same scene repeated later um, with a next going through the same portal to do and the Tom same even, thing. Tom even repeated the the, uh, the captioning yeah exactly and that, yeah, that, that's that, incredible Jarvis going through it again yeah, it's incredibly strong, and I feel like what's interesting about it is obviously when it was originally done, you know, it was in you know monthly comics when you know you didn't you weren't going to necessarily binge it, um, but it works both ways. Like it, you know, it, it's evocative. Yeah, but maybe you, even a little better. Yeah, but yeah, I understand what you're saying, right? Like even have, even having just like you know when I read them all kind of one at once again, it still had that resonance. In fact, even more so because you now remember that moment from before. So having the you know the same narration or the same uh, dialogue being spoken as they go through, it hits all the harder because you remember what happened the first time. 
So that's great stuff. Yep. Um, now, specifically on this issue, what has always struck me and always been something I loved um, is right near the end where you have the six-panel page which, with no captions at all and just the emotion that you're drawing as you have Hercules, just a complete wreck in Kevin's arms, and then slowly Argo coming over and then taking over and holding his father. And I've just always thought that was such a beautiful scene. Um, and again, it's completely wordless. Like, you don't need anything you know, on your artwork. You just, you get everything you need just for the six panel storytelling. What was it like putting that page together? Uh, it was one of those things where I just did my job and it's the, you know, Tom as editor and writer had the final say in how he wanted to handle it, whether or not he thought it would need anything. Mm-hmm. I was very gratified that he decided it didn't. Um, you know, it wasn't something where I intended Kevin to be saying anything to Argo or anything like that. You know, I, I thought it should probably be played silently. But, you know, I mean, there there could have been plenty of legitimate reasons to, to throw some dialogue in there or a caption or something. And um, I'm, like I said, I'm gratified that he didn't feel the need to. Mm. But, uh, yeah, that's just, that's what they're paying me for is to try to, <laughs> try to tell a story in pictures and, and if it brings out stuff about the character, because, you know, Argo is a tragic character too, you know, I mean, he, he spent all this time training to, so he could stick it to his dad, and then he found out that, no, his dad didn't just take off, <laughs> his dad didn't, it's not that his dad didn't care, his dad's in bad shape, mm-hmm. you know. No, for sure. When, um, one thing I, I always liked about, uh, so I obviously just gave you a, a compliment about your art, so I should also say something nice about Tom, is I really liked how when, and maybe this came from you because of your, uh, the extensive use of uh, notes you had, but uh, when uh, Hercules, again, his mind is not quite there and he's talking to Kevin, but talking to him as if he's Eric, that was really resonant because, again, they had a great relationship and friendship. Yes. And so him... I don't remember who that came from, so we'll okay. take equal credit for that. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, the fact that he uh, that he just heard the word, he heard the name Thunderstrike and thought it was Eric, yeah, uh, really played well. Uh, it was really, really well done. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and give the nod to Tom because <laughs> I really don't remember it for sure one way or the other. But... Uh, yeah, it was very cool stuff. I mean, because, you know, Kevin had his own bond with Hercules that we saw play out in Thor uh, when Hercules was living with him and stuff. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, it was always wonderful to, you know, because we tried to do it even in the Spider-Girl What If. We tried to, to spin out of the, the the existing relationships that we had with the characters and everything. And that's what we were always trying to do with... A next is you know a lot of people gave a shit for using a uh, thunderstrike. We got a couple of letters that said you know only Tom DeFoco would use thunderstrike. Most Thor fans are trying to forget him, so dump him. You know that kind of thing. Which yeah. personally, I always went only Tom would use thunderstrike. Uh, <laughs> no, I'd use that kind of thing. But uh, one of the reasons that we use thunderstrike is is because Kevin was a pre-existing legacy character that we knew intimately and who had met the Avengers, who had, you know, had met Hercules and knew Hercules. So, I mean, when you're choosing between characters or you're choosing between a pre-existing character that you 
have some uh, some stake in or creating a new character from scratch, take the one that's already got the legs. You know, take the one that can already t- lead you into more stories and lead you into different connections and, and different dynamics with these characters. And, you know, Kevin was an obvious choice. I mean, to my pleasure, I don't know about that particular reader, but to my pleasure, a lot of people ended up really liking Kevin in the same way that a lot of readers really ended up liking Eric because he's he's a good guy. He's the kind of guy that you'd like to hang out with mm-hmm. you know he had your back he was there uh, and he was present and he was always trying to do the right thing and that's what I always liked about that family you know I mean they we, we didn't try to make them uh, give them dark sides or you know feet of clay or anything like that they were just people in an extraordinary situation trying to do the right thing and uh, and I don't think there's anything more relatable or uh, accessible than that for the reader, you mm-hmm. know. For sure. Now, uh, a last thought about issue six um, is that on that final page, just to, from an interesting panel composition, because you have kind of a, a long, narrow uh, shot where you have both the three Avengers kind of wondering what happens next, and then you also have, in, just behind them, you have uh, the moment still playing out with Argo and Hercules, and then you have the black space on the side, and then just the kind of the next issue uh, blurb. What kind of what thoughts were going through your head when you kind of designed that page? It's an interesting use of the block space to kind of reemphasize the moment that's happening. Yeah, well, two things. One was that it didn't feel like a splash page moment to me. Um, but I also wanted to show some serious foreboding and that, you know, metaphorically, the world was starting to close in on these characters, you know, that... Uh, that there was, I, I really wanted to go for the foreboding of, you know, Kevin's comment is we do what we should have done when we reformed this team. We find out what happened to the, you know, to the original Avengers. We get answers, and uh, you know, it just, I, I, it just didn't feel like it should be a full splash. <clears throat> and I decided to go with the black because I, you know, I, I like the idea of doing some. Uh, some grim foreboding to what they might find out, you know, that kind of thing. Plus, it, it stayed with the theme that they were, I mean, the entire sequence, they, they were inside that adamantium cell, you know, and the whole sequence was pretty much in shadow and, and uh, you know, in dark and everything. So I, I, there was no reason for me to want to open it up on that page uh, and, uh, and make them look, you know, bright or anything. So uh, I stayed with the, the feel of the scene, the claustrophobic feel of the scene up to that point. Mm-hmm. So, Ron, it's been almost two hours, and we've gotten halfway through the series, so I feel like we should maybe break <laughs> off and uh, at some point uh, reconvene to uh, go through the remainder of the series if you're game. I have no problem with that, Adam. That would be great pleasure. I mean, I've been enjoying the... Co- Believe me, I, it's always fun for me to talk to somebody who is enjoyed the run and is as you know plugged in and thoughtful about it as you've been and i i uh, appreciate it I, I you know to meet somebody who has appreciated the work in the ways you have and to the extent that you have is is very uh humbling and uh and wonderful for me so i would be uh, honored and delighted to continue this conversation another time Excellent. Well, thank you so much for spending so much of your time already. And again, uh, hopefully without, uh, without it being too long, we'll have you back uh, to talk about the rest of the series. Okay. You just drop me a line when you're, when you're ready, and 
I sincerely hope that this may get people to maybe check out A Next if they haven't at this point, or uh, uh, at least it wasn't boring for them. Yeah. So I will, I will say, so I mean, it's, it's never been collected physically, but you can buy it on Comixology, which I've done myself. You can access it on Marvel Unlimited. Uh, you can find, hopefully, the singles out there somewhere. So people can get a hold of these issues and actually enjoy them. Yeah, there was a there was a uh, digest that only did the first six issues. Yeah, that's right. So, Sorry, um, I... and, and hopefully between now and the next time we speak, I'll be able to find my copy of issue twelve. So <laughs> that w- that would be helpful as well. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my friend. Thank you so much. I oh, appreciate it. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks so much.